I was reminded by a, uh, a friend I was, I was on Facebook with the other day um, who had uh, lost her parents and didn't have any family. She was alone on Christmas. And I was thinking about how different my Christmas was. Uh, for me, on Christmas Day, I was here. I was with my church family, whom I deeply love, all these great people to celebrate, and we were worshiping together. And then we uh, hopped in our van and drove down to Sue's family in San Diego. We were with family that we love. We made it down there safely without a whole lot of traffic. There were just a lot of rich things in my life to celebrate. And then I was thinking about the thing that I celebrate the most, the the thing that's most meaningful to me, and that is that my life has this, this great foundation. Jesus is talking with this group of people, some of them who assume they had the spiritual answers to all of life's questions. And um, he was in conversation with them. This is recorded in Matthew 21, verse 42. And he asked the question. He says, have you never read the scriptures? It's like, you guys, um, if you're younger, having your mom ask you, have you never cleaned your room? It's a basic question. And these people assumed that they knew God's word. And Jesus is asking them, how have you missed one of the most important and significant and foundational things of life? How is that possible? And then he quotes a scripture, an Old Testament scripture, and he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord, or Yahweh's, doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, he's talking about himself as the cornerstone, the one thing that squares our life, that keeps our foundation correct and solid. So when life and the storms hit and crazy things happen, and all of us experienced some of those things this year, and some of you experience them in profound ways, I know that my life is secure in this, that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. So he's telling him that there's one foundational things, and you've missed it. How did you misread Scripture so badly? Well, all of us have been there, right? All of us have struggled with that. And it's the message these people start to wrestle with. And I have people, you have people in your life who have rejected Jesus as the foundational point of their life, the cornerstone. And at times, we wrestle with our own doubts and struggles and frustrations with that. We live around people that wrestle with who Jesus is and have come to define him in ways that are nothing like what God's word defines him as or who he was when he was actually here on earth. So for the next five weeks, we're going to take some time, including this week, to talk about Jesus, the one that, for those of us who follow him, should be our greatest love, that we should know the best. We should know better than our kids or our parents or our spouses, that we should know the Lord. And this morning, we're going to talk about a specific part of that knowledge that really actually makes a huge difference. We as a church, we have a mission. We've rooted it on that passage where Jesus gives a mission to his people in Matthew chapter 28. And it's to make disciples of every ethnic or every people group, every nation. 
That's what the church should be about. And that's what Bridges is about in our mission. To make disciples, people who follow Jesus, of every kind of people. Look around the room. There are people from a lot of different countries and nationalities, places here. And we praise God for that because that's part of the central mission of the church. It's what we are about, making disciples of every nation. And we have this vision for us that is born out of that mission, that we could see a thousand new people made into disciples. And this last year, we saw a whole group of people trust Jesus and start to follow him. But we're hungry. We're hungry for a lot more of that because we live in Milpitas and Fremont and Union City and Newark. We live in this area where there are so many people who have yet to place their faith in Jesus and trust him and follow him with their lives. And having known and tasted how sweet that can be and how good and right and true it is, we long for our friends and our family to get there too. So this year, we're just going to hone in on one topic all year long. How is it that I make an impact? That's part of who I am as a disciple. Actually, to live my life in such a way that people come to know and trust Jesus. They become disciples because of what God is doing in and through me and, and out of me. And that's what we're about. So this morning, I want us to think about that. What would it take for those people who are in my world, who are in your world, the, the group of people where they're, they're neighbors, or people that you work with or go to school with, to actually take that step and trust Jesus. Well, all of us know that um, we're not going to argue them into the kingdom. All right? We're not going to all of a sudden come up with some great apologetic or erudite argument, and all of a sudden they're going to all come. And it's probably not going to become, gonna, they're probably not going to come because of our winsome personality. Though some of you have really great personalities. They're going to come. Because the Lord God of heaven and earth, from the very beginning of their lives until this day, has been present and calling them to himself. They're going to come because of the presence of Christ. And that's what I want to talk about a little this morning. About his presence and the kind of difference that the presence of Jesus makes in us. One of the early Christian writers and leaders of the church, a man called Athanasius, said this. Dead men cannot take effective action. Seems obvious, doesn't it? Their power of influence on others lasts only till the grave. Deeds and actions that energize others only belong to the living. Well then, look at the facts. The Savior, Jesus, is working Mightily among men, every day he is invisibly persuading numbers of people all over the world, both within and beyond the Greek-speaking world, to accept his faith and to be obedient to his teaching. Can anyone in the face of this still doubt that he is risen and lives, or rather that he himself is life? Does a dead man prick the consciences of men? He's alive. And the thing that's going to make a difference in your life this year is the living, powerful presence of Jesus. You knowing it, you experiencing it, and you living in the moment of that experience to to hand it off to your friends and family members for them to experience it as well. So what does that look like? How would that experience be part of your experience this year? 
What would it look like for people all over the world? Athanasius said it in his day. That was 1,800 years ago. What would it look like in our day for the living Jesus to be pulling people from all people groups, every nation, and making disciples for his namesake? Clearly, I think that Jesus' presence is essential to disciple-making. And like many of you, I become humbled when I step into some of those conversations with family and friends, and I start tripping over my words. And um, I think about it, like 15 minutes later, what I really should have said right in that moment, or think about that verse that would have been perfect for the moment, but I didn't say the verse. I forgot it, or I I stumbled over myself, and I wondered, how is that person ever going to actually enjoy what life without guilt and shame is like? How is that person going to ever really experience Jesus? Well, the obvious truth is this, that it's the presence of Jesus, his very living presence in the moment that draws people to himself. He uses me. He uses failed people like me and like you to do it. And what does that look like? What does it look like when Jesus actually grabs hold of us? Jesus is speaking to the centrality of this this truth, his presence, when he says this in John 15, starting at verse 4. For some of you, familiar words. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do you know that? And yet, I often live like I can do stuff that lasts without abiding in him, without that moving presence of him in my life. Here's the point. Disciples cannot be made without the presence of Jesus. That's not rocket science, right? It's pretty obvious. He empowers us. He moves us from first to last. Now, I want you to think about how people in Scripture experienced the presence of Jesus. Let's start at the beginning. Adam and Eve are in in the garden. And there's the presence of God. They're walking with him. How cool would that be? And then, as you know the story, sin enters in. And they're living in shame. They're afraid of the presence of God. And some of us experienced that this year. Perhaps you're right in the middle of that experience where you are afraid of the living presence of God. You don't want to get too close to him because he's a little unpredictable. Or perhaps he'll expose that part of your life that's ugly and scarred. Perhaps he'll open you up to feelings of inadequacy and hurt and pain. Listen, the Lord, his presence, there's nothing better, there's nothing sweeter, but he will get to those places that are broken inside of you, inside of me. And that's good. We should invite it. We need to invite that, actually. And he will take care to heal those places in you and in me. 
But he can't use you unless you draw close, unless you're abiding with him. And so in the garden, Adam and Eve were struggling with that. And fig leaves, they thought, might be the answer. Bad idea, by the way. Their sin needed to be addressed. And that's why Jesus and his presence were essential. What he did in history to come to take care of that division. Moses is wrestling with this whole concept of the presence of God. And God taught him some lessons that you can't be a leader. You can't be a leader of people without his presence. He tried and he failed miserably and found himself in Midian, being you know, in, in the wilderness by himself and trying to learn hard lessons that God was honing on him. And then he has a conversation. It's recorded in Exodus chapter 33 where he's wrestling with God's call in his life to go back and lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. And God says this, verse 14, And he said, that is God said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, Moses said to the Lord, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Don't, don't even Don't even call us to get out of Egypt if your presence won't go with us. Moses had been broken to a place where he knew that he was desperate for it, that he needed it, that things were going to go off the rails without the presence of God and his work. And that's where he loves to draw us to. He needs us in those places. Fast forward several centuries. People of Israel are struggling For over 50 years, they had a king. His name was Uzziah. He started off really well, like some of us, following God, wanting to obey him. And then his life, because of his pride, his hubris, it went off track. And he found himself embroiled in all kinds of things that displeased God. And ultimately, his life was a mess. And the kingdom was struggling with sin. There was They had lost their way. Uzziah dies. God's still present. And he comes to a prophet whose name is Isaiah. And this is what's recorded in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, that's the angels, Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the angels flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, here I am. Send me. God brought Isaiah to this place 
of intimacy into his presence, and it wrecked him. It was like overwhelming, right? It was a place of holiness. And some of us, um, we would run the other direction. Isaiah is there in the moment. He's experiencing this. And God does this thing with this interesting picture there. He takes him and he brings atonement. That is, he heals. He addresses Isaiah's brokenness and his sin. And he's calling him into his presence. And Isaiah, in the story, comes to a place where when God calls him out, after he's done this work of healing in his life, and after Isaiah has been drawn into the presence of God, then he answers the call. Who's going to go? Send me. That's the Lord at work in us with his presence. He says, look at around you, if you would, just for a moment, right? Think about all the people that God is sending you into their lives. You can't do it. You can't do anything without his presence, without his touch, atoning you, healing you, addressing your sin, and then moving you out, sending you out. Consider the links that people in Jesus' day went to to see him, to step into his presence, to try to experience in him. It wasn't just the miracles, though those were pretty amazing. It wasn't just his teaching, though that was incredible. They, they were wanting to sense the presence of God. People hunger for it. They still do today. Although I think our world is pretty schizophrenic. I can be schizophrenic. I can want to be in the presence of God, and yet there is that part of me that knows that he is holy. And I'm going to be exposed when I walk in to his presence. And that I am weak in my witness, my ability to communicate Christ to others. And so sometimes I fear being embarrassed or not knowing what to say in the moment, not trusting or leaning into his presence and his work in me. And yet God promises to use me. He calls me and wants me to trust in him. John writes these words in John chapter 1. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Christ came, it's what we celebrate at Christmas, to be present, for us to understand that he is present. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God drew them. God gave them new life. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. He steps into this conflicted place, just like he steps into the conflicted place in my life and the life of my friends and family members. It's into this conflicted place that we bring his presence, a presence filled with grace and truth that fuels our mission. His presence is the oxygen for our mission to make disciples. Can you recall this past year a conversation you might have had with somebody 
and you're trying to communicate your faith to them and you feel like, oh man, that was a train wreck. Some of you can. Um, Some of you are denying, but it happens, right, to all of us. What was missing? In that moment, I want to call you, encourage you strongly to acknowledge that you need the presence of God to do the work, that you don't have the answer, but you need his presence to move through you so that lives can be changed, so people can know Jesus, discover him, and follow him. When I was in high school, I was on this trip with my youth group, and um, we did whatever we were doing. I didn't forget what we were doing, but we ended up at McDonald's because my youth pastor knew that for high school guys, quantity is better than quality, right? (laughs) So we're stuffing food in our faces. We're eating. I don't even, you know, all I remember was that that at McDonald's, um, over the loudspeaker in McDonald's, I've never experienced this. There was a loudspeaker in this McDonald's, and someone didn't call a number. They said, is Ron King here? I thought that was super bizarre. We have a phone call for you. At McDonald's, they had a phone call for me. It was really weird. This was many years ago. Can I just preface this by saying I am old? When Pastor Nate was talking about old people's small groups, that's the one I go to. <laughs> and um, so this was before cell phones and all that stuff. I get this phone call. It's this McDonald's. So I go up, and, I'm, and on the phone, I'm thinking, who could this possibly be? It was um, a camp called Forest Home. And they had tracked me down. I don't know how they had tracked me down, but they tracked me down and they said, can you come up and um, be a camp counselor? And um, this is Sunday night. It's Sunday, and I said, well, when do you need me? And they said, right now. Can you come right now? And I looked at my schedule. I was a high school guy. And I'm like, yeah, it sounds great. Camp. I mean, what could be better than camp? I love camp. And uh, I don't have responsibilities that I have to be at. And so I was like 15 years old. And they had a limit. You're supposed to be 16, but they, they just were desperate for somebody, anybody that could be the counselor. So, um, so I said yes. And I went straight home, and I got, in the, you know, I got my stuff. My parents took me up to Forest Home. And I got there late at night, and we were in teepees. We were, they had these kids in these teepees, and they had about eight kids per teepee and then a counselor. And uh, the guy who was in charge of the camp, he meets me and he walks me and goes, this is your teepee over here with your kids. And um, by the way, I just want you to know, um, these kids, they all grew up in Watts. They're living in Watts. They're not like you. Because I grew up in this small town that was over 95% Caucasian. And my experience was middle class. And that was not their experience. And I'm like, okay. No problem, you know, and, um, and he said, by the way, um, I also need to let you know that they've already gotten into some fights, and they've stolen some stuff from some counselors, and they had this list of things they'd already done. I'm like, oh, no, this is not going to be a vacation. <laughs> so I go into this teepee, and um, they're all playing like they're asleep, and they're all like fourth and fifth grade kids, you know, and so I get my stuff out, I... I get my sleeping bag and I put it down and I see that they're still awake and we start to have a little conversations and they settle down finally and we go to sleep. And the next morning, um, we're walking to breakfast and I see this kid who comes yelling down this path toward breakfast and he's got a bloody nose. 
And I think, oh no, what's happened? Where's all my kids? You know, I'm looking for all my kids. And sure enough, a couple of them are not there. And uh, this kid, um, I said, what's wrong? He said, one of your kids just beat me up. He's crying now. And so I find his counselor and we start to have this conversation. And this conversation leads to the point that this kid who happened to be a Caucasian kid called my kid a name, a racial name, and he was going to learn a life lesson that my kid grew up in Watts and he was able to defend himself and teach life lessons. And so the counselor and I looked at each other and we said, this is camp, right? It's about life lessons. We're calling it fair, right? So we did, went to breakfast and I was alerted to the fact that um, I was not going to be able to do what needed to be done in the life of these kids in one brief week, right? And uh, it could be a long week. And it, it was a long week. First day that afternoon, we're walking to the pool. And I've got most of my kids, which is pretty good, right, parents? You've got most of your kids around you. <laughs> and um, so we're walking to the pool, and a couple of my kids had gone off to the side, didn't see where they were, and they got this idea to start throwing rocks. Well, they're boys, right? Every boy throws rocks. And they're throwing rocks at the top of this tree. They thought that would be a good idea. And what they didn't realize is on the other side of the tree was the swimming pool. And so it's the afternoon, we're walking the pool, they're throwing rocks, and all of a sudden I hear this yell. And I go running, and it's the lifeguard <laughs> who was now on his way to the hospital because my kids have been throwing rocks and they hit him in the head, split his, the lifeguard's head open, and I'm thinking, oh Lord, it's only Monday. And my entire week was like that. I was humbled and I was, you know, I was just learning lessons like, God, I just, I said yes to you. I said, here I am. I'll go to camp. And what's happening in my life, right? So now it's Friday. I fast forward to Friday night. I won't tell you all the things that happened that week, but it's Friday night now. And I'm, I'm there around the campfire. And at Forest Home, the tradition for that camp was they're going to be really clear with the gospel throughout the week. And then on Friday night, they're going to call people out to make commitments, call kids out to follow Jesus and become disciples. And I'm thinking about the long list of things that went wrong that week. And I'm thinking, Lord, I can't do anything. I need you. Right now, my kids need you. If any good thing is going to happen, it's going to be because of you. They're not going to listen to this speaker. They're not going to hear anything that's going on. They're going to be struggling with the way that other people treated them. They're going to be wrestling with all the other things. They're not going to hear you unless you're present, unless you do something. Lord, I just am praying, would you, would you do what I can't do? Would you do the impossible? So the speaker gets up. I can't tell you you know, what he said exactly. I just know he was communicating the truth that Jesus loves us and that he would address all of our sin and brokenness, our shame and our guilt. And he came and he's present through Jesus. And he came to pay for our sin and to bring us to him, to bring forgiveness to him through Jesus. And we have to trust him. That's all I remember of the message and me just begging God that my kids would listen and they wouldn't get into another fight in the middle of this talk and that God would somehow show up. At the end of the talk, every one of my kids came to faith in Jesus. 
And I thought, yeah, it's one of those chilling moments. I thought as a young man, God, I don't ever want to step into another setting where I don't rely on your presence. Where I don't have a conversation with somebody and know that I can't do it. It's got to be you moving, you changing lives. God, if there's one thing I'm dreaming of this year is that the presence of God moves so powerfully to the people that I love in this church that we would have all kinds of settings like that where we would know we are incapable and God is capable that except for the presence of God moving, we're done. But if he does move, then a thousand new disciples is a drop in the bucket. Oh God, be present with your people and move. Let me pray. Father, that is our prayer. Our prayer is that you would use our inadequacies, you would fill them up with your adequacy. Our prayer, Lord, is that we would see the nations, people different than ourselves, from all walks of life that are surrounding us in our neighborhoods and schools, places of work. And because of the moving presence of Jesus, they would come to place their faith in you and experience new life and walk with you for a lifetime. Oh God, move by the power of your presence. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.